Hello, time travelers, and welcome back to Biblical Time Machine, your favorite Bible history podcast. I am one of your hosts, Dave Roos. I am a journalist, and uh, I'm here with Helen Bond, professor of Christian origins at the University of Edinburgh. Helen, we are we're talking to a legitimate biblical studies rock star today, aren't we? I mean, <laughs> we certainly are. We certainly are. Paula Fredrickson is wow. um, just one of those big names, and and she just knows everything. You know, she's written on Jesus, she's written on Paul. Everything she writes has great new insights. Mm. You know, stuff that you'd never even considered before, and and she knows everything about the context, and you know, writes crazy, through to the medieval like, period. How long? How long have I mean, people have been writing commentaries and, and things about. <laughs> The New Testament and and all this stuff forever, like to to have somebody who comes years. up with new <laughs> right, but to come up with like new insights and new ways to look at it, it is remarkable. I know it's it takes a special kind of person. So um, so we're really lucky, I think, yeah. that we've got her on the program today. Nice. And and where like, how do you guys know each other? You seem like you go back a little bit. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, for me, she's like the big, the big name that I, I've been reading ever since I was a wee little scholar, <laughs> a little, a little student. Um, so I'm always a bit starstruck. Um, so yeah, I've, I've just known her a long time, but actually we got, um, we got to know each other a bit better when we were both in Jerusalem doing a, oh. a documentary called Countdown to Calvary. Oh. And it was um, the, the, the the kind of presenter was Hugh Bonneville, you know, the the actor, the lead guy in uh, Downton Abbey, right. Lord Grantham. Oh. Yeah, I, oh, yeah, I think we were both quite starstruck again. Yeah. Ooh, Lord is Grantham. He, is he, he like, is he kind of a handsome guy in, in, in real life? Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he actually is quite like Lord Grantham in real life. Oh, I'm not sure how much acting is, is going on there. I mean, he's done other roles where there's lots of acting, but he, he's a real gentleman nice. and he's very, yeah, that, that kind of, you know, gentlemanly British type. So he's perfectly suited for that. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, no, so, so doing documentaries and things is always a bit strange because there's lots of hanging about mm. and, you know, just waiting, waiting, waiting. And then you get sort of like 10 minutes of something or half an hour interview sure. and then wait, wait, wait again. So, um, so I think that's Paula where I first out. got to know her. Okay. Hanging out, hanging out in Jerusalem. Well, that's cool. So they flew you to Jerusalem to do this documentary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Helen, you're, yeah. you're a big shot. <laughs> you you might be a rock star too if we're throwing. Oh, I'm I'm maybe a backing singer. Oh. <laughs> They're very important. Very backing, very backing. <laughs> well, so yeah, we're we're having Paula on to talk about. She she wrote a book a few years ago called "When Christians Were Jews: The First Generation." Um, I know it's, it's I, I love these titles. So, uh, you know, the topic being what. Was it really like to be among the the followers of Jesus that that first group, you know, that, that were with him and 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 were with him when he died and after the resurrection and and who you know they were Jewish and and that's sort of the 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 big theme that we're going to keep coming back to is like what was it like to be part of this Jewish community that were followers of Jesus? How different? Were they from other Jewish communities in Jerusalem in the first century? How much the same were they as these other communities? Did they, you know, keep the laws? What were their understandings and beliefs about who Jesus was and what did that mean for the end of the world? So 
I, I think it's it's fascinating. We had a great we had a great conversation, didn't we? Yeah. No, it was really really good. One of the best. Nice. So, um, before we jump to her, just a reminder to our listeners to check out the Time Travelers Club, our exclusive members only area, where you can <laughs> uh, you can get special content. Helen and I have recorded some things just for the Time Travelers Club, so I know you're eager to to hear what we had to say, I and mean, we we exposed. All of our private lives, and it's really embarrassing. <laughs> so, uh, and 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 we've got some extra footage of uh, Paula too. So, so the content true. is growing. Yeah, yeah, we're we're putting up things that we record with our guests that are just for the just for the Time Travelers Club. So, please go check it out. It's five dollars a month. It's the price of you know probably less than a cup of coffee wherever you live, and uh, it's <laughs> it's very generously supporting the podcast. So do that and then uh yeah for now let's let's get to our conversation with paula Fredrickson about when christians were jews paula Fredrickson, welcome to biblical time machine thank you for having me it's a pleasure to be here all right so I know you can't get in the minds of, of every person out there, but do you think if you walked into just a random church today and you started talking to people, do you think do you think Christians today would be surprised that the early Jesus movement, those those first followers of Jesus, was a Jewish movement? I think that uh most uh Christians in most churches I'm familiar with are always surprised when I come as a scholar in residence <laughs> and break the news to them that um, uh, Jesus was was functionally actively Jewish mm. and that having arguments with uh, other Jews about the right way to be Jewish is one of the most recognizably Jewish things that we have <laughs> preserved in the Gospels. <laughs> so that that always comes uh, because and to in fairness to uh, the way. Uh, communities have developed. It's it's been going on since the second century to have mm. Jesus be an opponent of of Judaism and Paul being an opponent of Judaism. And you know, twenty centuries of an interpretive tradition is a lot of headwind if you're trying to fight that academically. So I would say it it always does. There's a sense of well, of course he was Jewish. How could he be the son of David if he weren't Jewish? And and yet and but mm. um, is mm. usually the response. Yeah, what was I? I was just reading something, and they might have even been quoting you, where they said, you know, kind of Jesus. Yeah, Jesus was Jewish, but not that Jewish. Is where like there's that there's that mm. there's that but in there, of course. Absolutely, absolutely, and it's. Um, I think part of the reason is that uh, it's a kind of fallacy of intention that somehow, if um, if we are in a community in the 21st century. Our community has to have been the intention hmm. of this hmm. first century person. It's a way of authorizing your own current modern identity. And if hmm. there's one thing studying history does, it's, uh, it's make you, it, it, uh, destabilizes that kind of idea of timeless identity. And, or at least I think good history should. What about this Jewish community then that's sort of around Jesus, the Jesus movement? Um, I mean, his followers think that he's the Messiah, but so, I mean, so what does this actually mean to them? What was the, the Jesus movement like? What was the Jesus movement like? Well, I, I 
you know, this is where I think Josephus should be considered the fifth gospel. Mm. Because oh, Joseph- we like him here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because he talks about, I mean, weird. Um, there's a good historical reason why Jesus monopolizes the messianic limelight. But in fact, when you read Josephus, you see that there are a lot of these charismatic mm. figures, a mm. lot of whom have followers, virtually all of whom get cut down by Rome. And so putting Jesus against that wallpaper kind of uh, anchors him in late Second Temple uh, Judaism, particularly in and around Judea. And uh, I think I think that um, the thing that distinguishes Jesus from these other uh, mess, let's call them messianic figures, um, is the claim is not Jesus himself, but the claim his followers made about him. He's the only messianic figure that I'm aware of whose followers claimed that he um, he had been raised from the dead. And not raised from the dead in the sense of resuscitation. That's kind of a, mm-hmm. as you know from ancient Christian sources, that's a kind of routine miracle that apostles do and virgins do and uh, all sorts of things <laughs> happen in apocryphal texts. But um, this idea that Jesus had been raised to a different state and was about to come back, mm-hmm. the significance of his being raised in that time context is that it's the trigger for the general resurrection, which happens according to the way the story develops when Jesus comes back, which means that the kingdom of God is at hand, which is, after all, mm-hmm. the first thing that's that's attributed to him in the Gospel of Mark. So, yeah, so this is a, an apocalyptic Jewish movement where did the people believe this, I mean, imminently they, the world was going to end, that they were living in, in the, last, the last days back then? Well, this is where... Um, the Dead Sea Scroll Library helps a lot to answer the question whether a lot of people uh, in Judea were thinking about the imminent end of the world. The Dead Sea Scroll community, as far as we know, had been living on the edge of time mm. for two centuries by the time we get all these other uh, later first century uh, first century uh, AD uh, figures. So um, it's it's kind of a mood within, I wouldn't call it a movement, it's not that articulate, but it's a certain identifiable mood within these texts that uh, we can still see. And that that is the significance for the claim of resurrection, is that it's one of the signature miracles that Jews expected at the end of time. The difference between, let's call them uh, Jesus Jews and John the Baptist Jews, um, is that Jesus' followers after his death were convinced that his prophecy was correct and that the kingdom of God really was about to happen on the, on the merit of his, uh, resur- their experience of his resurrection. So, so you would say the Apostle Paul then is one of these observant Jews who, who believes that Jesus is going to return within his lifetime. I mean, is, is that absolutely clear from his texts? One of the um, things that amazes me is how much Paul has been domesticated for an indefinite future uh-huh. when he says quite precisely that the form of this world is passing away and mm. uh, in view of the impending distress and uh, just the um, his message of sexuality where he's saying to people, you know, in, in view of the impending distress, I think it's better that nobody have sexual relations. Mm. And then that, that, that's, a, that's a short-term behavioral directive 
right? Mm -hmm. It only eventually Mm -hmm. becomes, you know, it changes from hold your breath to stop breathing Mm -hmm. uh, in Mm and later Mm -hmm. Christian traditions. So um, I think Paul unambiguously is talking about it. And the other thing that anchors Paul in an apocalyptic mentality is precisely the fact that Paul is going to pagans. Here's this very Jewish movement with this very Jewish message and Paul is going to pagans, and it's it's we're so used to knowing that Christianity became a Gentile movement that uh, we don't stop to ask the question, well, why on earth is he doing that? Mm. And again, if you put that against the wallpaper of Isaiah or against a lot of these um, apocalyptic texts, one of the other signature miracles expected at the end of time in Jewish traditions um, is that the nations will turn from their false gods and their statues of them, and turn and worship the God of Israel. And what Paul is mm-hmm. doing is is um, is actualizing hmm. that tradition. And the more he succeeds, the more he knows he's right. Of course, Paul's, Paul always <laughs> thinks that Paul is right. <laughs> <laughs> well, so in the same vein that you say, you know, if, if you when you go and speak to these churches, there's these and just a, just a few two thousand years of of tradition and, and and teaching that kind of gets in the way of our understanding of the first century. Something that that I often hear is, you know, we talk about the early church. You know, this is the early church. The early church. Paul was visiting the early church in this community and that community. Would the this Jewish movement of the second of the first century have thought itself as anything, you know, outside of Judaism, or like that it needed to be this new quote-unquote, church? Or was this just another of the many, you know, Second Temple Judaism movements of that time? You've just stubbed my toe against one of my other pet peeves. Oh, nice. Which is is the translation of ecclesia as church. Okay. The word in uh, in its own uh, period in the mid-first century means an assembly. And uh, it it reifies the idea of the later institution by translating that word as church. So what is what is Paul doing? Paul is going to pagans with a Jewish message, and he's asking. And again, Martin Luther wouldn't like my saying this, but what he's asking asking pagans to do is to radically Judaize. One of the most radically Judaizing demands he's making of them, if they want to be part of the coming kingdom, is that they absolutely have to stop worshiping their own gods. And uh, that's something that—and they have to live according to certain idealizations of uh, Jewish behaviors, um, monogamous marriages, giving to the poor, sending money back to Jerusalem for the community there. Mm. So, it's a form of— the message is a kind of Judaizing of Gentiles, or as Anders Runison in his recent book has entitled it, um, Judaism for Gentiles <laughs> is what uh, Paul and mm-hmm. other colleagues like him uh, seem to be teaching. Mm. That's really interesting. And so is that you know, that whole thing about um, converting the Gentiles or the Gentiles coming into Jerusalem, is that, is that why sort of Jerusalem continues to be so central to um to the Christian movement, even after, I mean, you know, you think after what happened to Jesus there, that the message might move out, but is, is it this, 
the, the fact that they're still Jews that, that keeps Jerusalem central. Well, it's that's one of the other obvious questions that nobody seems to ask because so, we're so used to knowing that the original community settles in Jerusalem after Jesus' mm. death. Considering that uh, Jesus had just been crucified by the Romans and Pilate is is has the job until the year 36, right? Um, <laughs> considering that the, the priests who were depicted in the Gospels as antagonized uh, by mm, Jesus mm. are there in Jerusalem all the time. How odd is it for the community to settle in Jerusalem? And I think the answer is that, again, in this uh, extremely long and rich tradition, Jerusalem is ground zero for the coming mm. of the kingdom. Mm. Mm. Even the temple, maybe, because they're still going to the temple, aren't they, and, and worshipping there. And, 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 and again, you'd think that they would keep as far away from the temple as they possibly can. But they're preaching from the temple courtyard, according to uh -huh. Acts, and that, which makes sense. I mean, we're right to handle Acts critically, but um, the temple courtyard was the largest public space in the city. So if you're going mm. to be trying to reach crowds, it makes sense that that's that's where the message would, uh, would go out from. So what's interesting to me is that, again, uh, for a Jewish idea, this is not unusual. There's no consensus on the ultimate um, eschatological value of Jerusalem because you have the idea of Jerusalem above. Paul himself doesn't have uh, his pagans going to Jerusalem. He has their bodies transforming from bodies of flesh into bodies of spirit, and they they don't go over to Jerusalem; they go up once mm. Jesus comes back um, into mm. into the upper upper air. Says uh, says Paul into into the heavens. He says so. It's not a terrestrial redemption for Paul, but in terms of a center of operations for the early missions. Jerusalem has this tremendous religious resonance that no other, you know, Caesarea doesn't have that. Mm. Tel Aviv didn't have it, right? It's um, Jerusalem's really the place where all this starts. Mm -hmm. wow. So, you know, Paul, Paul obviously, or at least the, the scholarly consensus is that he's our first, he's our earliest writer before the Gospels. But do we have any sense? Of of how and when things might have started to change for this community. So, like like you had said, there there there's an assumption and a, and a faith that Jesus is going to be you know he's going to be coming back soon. The end of the world is is coming soon. What happens when that doesn't happen? What what happens when a few decades pass? You know, do, does this community have to start asking itself some hard questions and and kind of what are those questions and how do they how do they answer them? I live in a country where a lot of Christians are still expecting Jesus to come back. There was a calculation he was coming back in 2000. He didn't. <laughs> um, and uh, nobody missed a beat. And there's now a calculation that he's coming back in 2050. Um, so it's, you know, maybe, maybe this time they're right, you know, but it's <laughs> that kind of readjustment. It's apocalyptic prophecies are continuously disconfirmed without ever being discredited. Mm. And I think that's what happens to, you get it already in the Gospel of Mark. Mark is writing probably one generation after Jesus and Paul's generation. And he's writing, I think, after the destruction of the temple. And yet he says that when you see the sign that the temple is destroyed, you'll know that the Son of Man is about to come back. Mm. 
right? So he's he's already one generation out from the original message, and he's still saying that things are on track. You know, Paul is writing, Paul already, even though he's our earliest witness, um, the kingdom of God is already 20 years late, and Paul is still running around telling pagans, you know, the kingdom of God is at hand. Mm. And he's confirmed in his conviction by the fact that these pagans are listening to him. So it's it's a kind of there's a kind of uh, generous elasticity <laughs> to this conviction that the world is about to end, especially if you think that you have received a revelation that that is the case. Well, we also get you know from from Acts and from from Paul's letters, we we get the we get the sense that that there are some divisions right that that rise up within this within this early movement. That there's some hard questions that they have to ask about you know what are we going to do with all these pagans like do how how jewish do these people have to become to be to be part of our crew so you know was was circumcision was that like the big one were there were there other ones um what are people what are jesus followers fighting about in the first uh generation i once characterized this period as too many gentiles too few jews and no end in sight um the um <laughs> Uh, the, they're fighting about, because it's incredibly destabilizing to have pagans not worship pagan gods. Mm. And here's where we have to think of normal Greco-Roman civil defense or homeland security. Mm. The way to keep your city safe is to placate the gods who supervene the city. And if you have people who are obligate, born into those obligations to uh, stopping to worship the gods who are are the protectors of the city, you have a homeland security crisis. It's tremendously destabilizing. Mm. And this, I think, explains both the anxiety of diaspora synagogue communities vis-a-vis uh, -vis this message, because if, if somebody's running around getting pagans to make an exclusive commitment to the God of Israel, there's only one place in town where it's going to seem like that message is emanating from, and that's the synagogue. Mm. So, so the the message of t of turning from pagan gods and turning to the Jewish God is a message that not only destabilizes the city, but it destabilizes the synagogue's place within the city, hmm. in the diaspora. And uh, for that reason, there's this question of well, what do we do with all these recycled Gentiles? And that's where you begin to get a controversy uh, or a controversy. Uh, Helen, um, uh, because uh, there's, there is a tradition in Greco-Roman antiquity that's recognized by pagans that some people who are not Jews, quote-unquote, become Jews, uh, the gentlemen by, specifically by circumcision. Women, I think, probably just by marriage to a Jew, but, um, but gentlemen by circumcision. And so it's something that's known to happen. It's something that's grudgingly accepted. And some members of the community, the Jews, Jesus community, as time continues to wear on, is trying to stabilize this intrinsically socially destabilizing situation of, of, of pagans not worshiping pagan gods. And they say, well, well let's, let's convert them to Judaism full on by having circumcision. And as we all know, Paul thought that was a very bad idea. Mm. So that's why Paul always, there's always this sort of friction between Paul and the synagogue authorities then, is it? Because, because they're worried that his actions are going to look bad on them. People are going to start saying, well, you know, this is all coming from the synagogue and, and not actually realize that, that 
they have nothing to do with it. That's right. And that's one of the reasons why I think Paul um, receives uh, the 39 lashes uh, mm. five times. Mm. And I think he's, there's been an argument made that that happened to him in synagogues in Judea. I think it happened to him in his ambit, his professional mm. ambit as an apostle in the diaspora. And it's because um, this kind of message would be tremendously socially destabilizing for, mm. for synagogues. So other than we, 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 you know, we talk a lot about circumcision. We talk a little bit about, you know, keeping kashrut, keeping kind of, you know, what, what are we eating? What are they eating? Were there other, other divisions that maybe are not as obvious to sort of casual readers of the Bible and, or, or are there, are there things that come up in non-biblical texts that can point to maybe divisions within this early community? Um, Part of the part of the problem is whether you go to Gentiles, and we have a, an encapsulation of that tension in the story of Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman mm-hmm. in the Gospel of Mark, and suddenly she becomes a biblically much more resonant Canaanite woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Matthew retells the story, is it do you, you know? And Matthew always says, "Go nowhere among the the Gentiles. Go first to the lost sheep of the house of Israel." So there's obviously some kind of controversy which again has good traditional reasons behind it, because in the biblical paradigm, it's, it's Israel that's redeemed, and then the nations that turn hmm. um, to the God of Israel. So that's, uh, so that's one reason to say, well, well, we have to get to as many Jews as possible. God's going to take care of the Gentiles himself. Hmm. The second reason why there's a, a controversy about what to do with all these Gentiles is that Jesus never preached to Gentiles. I mean, you think about it, the only person, Gentile person, pagan person he has extended conversations with uh, in the Gospels is Pilate, Hmm. and he's not proclaiming (laughs) the kingdom of God to Pilate. So, Mm -hmm. um, there's the the fact that there is no tradition from Jesus about what to do with Gentiles is one of the reasons why there's there's so much conflict about, um, about this issue. And remember, everybody's in this pressure cooker of trying to do everything as quickly as possible before before Jesus comes back. Hmm. And that's, again, this this argument about what to do with Gen. I mean, when you think about, let me back up a little bit and say for a minute, Roman culture is a guy thing. It's, it's very masculinized. It's gendered male, big time. And this meant that Romans, uh, like Greeks, were um, put off by circumcision. So, <laughs> I don't know why, oh. but... Um, strange. So strange, yes. But um, this is another reason I think uh, that Paul didn't see the necessity for circumcision, uh, and that and he was angry at the his colleagues, who were. I mean, how many Jews in the in the first half of the first century are going to pagans to tell them that Jesus is coming back? Than these, you know, a handful of people, and Paul's arguing with the rest of them, mm. right? Because they're <laughs> saying, "Well, we've got to stabilize this situation somehow." I think we should start circumcising people, and Paul's saying that you don't have to. We've got this covered mm-hmm. because the Spirit is already infusing these populations, and we don't have to worry about about circumcision. And there isn't going to be a fleshly body in the kingdom of God anyway. So mm. relax about circumcision. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's he's out there. He's out there trying happy. to sell this, you know, this movement, and and then he gets to that part, and he knows, he knows that that's the last part. He's like, by the way, there's one more thing you have to do. And he is killing his, uh, you know, his his percentage. He's killing his. That's right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> 
So if we get in our time machine then and move along a little bit, just move a, a couple of decades after after Paul, we get to the Jewish revolt then, and I mean all the massive upheaval that 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 leads to. Did did that have an impact on on this this Jesus movement? I think that the Jewish revolts had a the one in in sixty six to seventy three, the first Jewish revolt, uh, which results in the destruction of the city and the temple. And also, even more so, the Bar Kokhba revolt in 132-135 has uh, a tremendous effect on the way the later tradition looks back at the Jewishness hmm. of its own of its own roots. Because the uh, what we get in when we look at second century Gentile writers is that they are arguing that the destruction of the temple proves that God Himself is disowning Jewishness. Hmm. That God Himself is is uh, against, and then you, you can fill in the list of whatever it is they don't like uh, mm-hmm. about Jewishness. So it's they feel they have empirical proof on the basis of the of the Roman destruction, and we know there are arguments about that because um, some pagans are saying, well, this proves that uh, Roman gods are stronger than Jewish gods. You know, irrefutable. The temple's been destroyed. Um, I think that the destruction of the temple is one of the reasons why. Um, the temple looms so large in a later apocalyptic texts because the, mm. the, the destruction of the temple has to be somehow rectified by apocalyptic tradition. And we get that in the book of Revelation where the heavenly Jerusalem descends, but there's no temple in the city mm. uh, because the mm. whole city is the temple. So the, <laughs> the destruction of the temple, but it's the destruction of the temple that's amplified by the Bar Kokhba revolt, because by 132-135, you have Gentile Christianities in the plural, because they're arguing with each other too, right? (laughs) Um, You have Gentile Christianities pointing to the destruction of the temple and saying, see, um, Jewishness is wrong, or God never wanted blood sacrifices anyway, and Jews must be the ones who actually crucified Jesus because otherwise God wouldn't have destroyed the temple. And mm. in fact, the dis- and but you get it because of the um, uh, because in the second century there's also this cataclysmic revolt that really feeds into this type of argument. We hardly ever hear about that revolt, isn't it? Everyone talks about the first Jewish revolt, but the the Bar Kokhba one certainly in the sort of the you know the things that I read and 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 it just seems. But like you say, it, it is a really important one, and and that's the one that leads to Jews being exiled from the city, isn't it? So, so it does that does that? I mean, is is that the point at which Jerusalem ceases to be the sort of the mother? The, the mothership, mothership, the mother city, the mothership. Well, I think the destruction of the of the city um, uh, went for. Although Justin says that when Jesus comes back and everybody's raised bodily in the flesh, or the saints are raised bodily for the thousand year reign of the saints, it's going to happen in a reconstituted Jerusalem. So Jerusalem wow. is still um, right. imaginatively uh, important, um, and alas, still is for twenty uh, first century apocalyptically minded Christian communities as well. Um, it's, it's a lot of pressure to put on a, a municipality. <laughs> um, uh, but the it's the Barcopi revolt that's the prism, and it's the, uh, I think, the stimulus for the invention of the idea of a second exile, which is historically nonsense, because Jews had been living comfortably in the diaspora for centuries before mm. the destruction of the temple. There is no 
uh, second exile that we need to account for all those communities. They've been up and running since Alexander the Great. Mm. So this this myth of a second exile is born in the plus second century among Gentile Christians, stimulated by the Bar Kokhba revolt, but looking back to the destruction of the temple, because what they're doing is thinking with the classical prophets and the destruction of the first temple, which gives, again, in terms of a biblical echo chamber, mm. it gives a kind of religious framing for the destruction this this uh, anomalous destruction of the temple in the year seventy. Mm-hmm. So is so are, are we that can we can we pinpoint? I mean, this is hard, but can can we can we say that maybe after that the Bar Kokhba revolt into the sort of mid second century was this a moment when people were Christians? I would say were were sort of identifying themselves as something other than a Jewish movement. Is that kind of maybe where? We could make a dividing line in, in this in the history. Um, there, unfortunately, for historians, there are no clear turning points in <laughs> history. There are, you know, these these phase changes that we try to identify. But um, I th- I think that um, already we have in Ephesians, which is uh, a, a Deuteropauline letter, a letter written in the name of Paul by somebody in a later generation. Right usually dated to the late first century, maybe even a little later. I have no idea, but nobody else does either. And and he's, uh, and he's the author of Ephesians is already talking about um, the, uh, the undoing of the necessity of the law. They're, he's talking about a de-Judaized mm. movement already. Um, you have a Valentinian Christianity thriving in the 130s. They, are, they look at the God of Israel, the God in, depicted in Genesis, as a lower demiurge that uh, is, in fact, represents a kind of um, hostile cosmic agent to the God of Israel, who is not the God of Israel. He's just the, the father of Christ. Hmm. So you, you get all these different variations. This is another pet peeve. Here we go again. This is going to be a record <laughs> of my irritations. We keep talking about Christianity as if it's yeah. a single thing. And um, it, it never was a single thing. And even after Constantine, uh, poor Constantine, he, uh, after 324, tries to get everybody on the same page. And he's got the army and the f- federal government behind him. And he still can't get people to agree. On, even within this one, one uh, small community within the huge, long uh, Christian umbrella. So it's, there never was one type of Christianity either. And um, so when does Christianity separate from Judaism? We tend not to know about all the forms of Jewish Christianity mm. Uh, mm. that are also um, thriving. And, and I don't even know if I should call it Jewish Christianity. They're, they're Jewish Jesus followers who are doing Jewish things, or they're Gentile followers of Jesus who are doing Jewish things. Mm. And um, so there's this, this broad spectrum of different types of Christianities. And that's one of the other reasons why we can't detect a single turning point sure. for the separation of Christianity from Judaism. Sure. Hmm. It all gets very complicated, doesn't it? Well, what about the Gospels then? Um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking particularly Matthew's Gospel, John's Gospel. There's some pretty bad stuff in there that, that sounds very anti-Jewish, but at the same time, you know, almost every word they say has some kind of Jewish resonance from the the Jewish scriptures. So 
where would you put them? I mean, do you think they do they already think of themselves as something separate, or are they, or, or, or again, does it just depend which gospel you're talking about? Um, here, I first of all have to say that one of the unfortunate things about our profession is that the study of these individual gospels is each its own continent of scholarship. Yeah, that's um, so right. So there is no. If you think uh, early Jesus followers are arguing with each other, it's nothing compared to what goes on at the SNTS. <laughs> Right. Um, the Society of, uh, so the Society of Biblical Literature, for example. So uh, I think Matthew is, is uh, advocating for his type of Jewishness as opposed to the Jewishness mm-hmm. of the Pharisees, who, about whom he says awful stuff. Helen, you know better than I do what the scrolls say about uh, the Jerusalem priesthood. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. you know, you can't get a good... I know, they, they can be really... They can be really exactly, nasty. they can be really negative. That's that's the thing, it's, isn't it? So saying nasty things about the high priest doesn't put you, quote, outside of mm. Judaism. The gospel... Probably more likely inside, actually, because <laughs> right. the, you're taking note of them. That's right. Yeah. Who else would be bothered with what the high priest is yeah. doing or thinking, yeah. except another Jew? Um, the gospel of John is is a tough one. There's this whole argument about, and I think part of it is apologetic, it's sort of like, you know, because when you read John on the surface, it's tremendously anti-Jewish, and it's the origin mm. of, uh, it's, a, it's a jumping off point for a lot of late, much later anti-Semitism. And uh, there's a way to soften that by saying, well, he's just, these are, this is a Jewish community that was kicked out of the synagogue, and they're, they're trying to claim legitimacy by blah, 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 blah. Um, I, it's a very polarizing gospel, and I think that that's a deliberate choice, and it's reconfiguring the community in cosmic ways. The community is really also from above, and it will, mm. the true believer will be above, not below. And um, when, when the Johannine Christ says, you are, the, you, you are your father, the devil, uh, that's that's not a an ecumenical moment, I think, in, in gospel <laughs> tradition. We've got one more question that we've been asking people in season oh, two, yeah. um, and that's and that's to make use of our time machine a little bit more <laughs> because um, we can go forward and we can go backwards. We're already at the Barcoba vo- uh, revolt, but if you could go anywhere <sighs> in the whole of history, <laughs> any place, any time. Where would it be? It doesn't have to be anything biblical, but it's interesting if um, interesting if it is interesting if it isn't. Where would you like us to take you? We can bring you back home if you like. No, no, no. Where where would I be if I could be anywhere? Here's where my knowledge as a historian gets in the way of my emotional choices to be a place. I think something like the resurrection of Jesus was a sort of dawning conviction on the part of the community. It didn't happen Sunday morning, um, you know, right a few days after the crucifixion. It was something that was a a slow dawning of conviction and people being charismatically Mm -hmm. empowered. I don't think Paul had a pinpoint turning point with his uh, quote, what we call his conversion, calling it a moment of conversion. You know, we're thinking of Augustine in Book 8 of the Confessions, and boom, the lights go on. Whereas you read Augustine's stuff that he wrote immediately after in 386, and he's talking about a gradual progress in philosophy. So there are this this fiction of moments of conversion Mm. is tremendously clarifying. But um, 
so there's, I wish I could be there when the community was uh, uh, convinced that Jesus had been raised, but I'd have to be there probably for several months. Um, d- does that count as a legitimate answer? I'd like to. That's fine. That's fine. We, we, we can come back for you in a couple of months. Okay. Or so. <laughs> and also with Paul, I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's something that took uh, a while of his exposure to this material and not a sudden big bang um, in, mm. his, in his consciousness. If I had to pick one moment, it would be um, in 312, outside of Rome. Um, I would love to know how Constantine was actually thinking when he, uh, <laughs> when he beat out his competition and took the city of Rome and became uh, the Roman emperor. He, um, that would be, again, but that's the fiction of the con- moment of conversion. Um, mm. So dramatic and so satisfying. I wish they existed. <laughs> You could sit down and have a chat with him and maybe he'll, maybe right. he would tell See you here. his thinking. Dear sir, what's going on? <laughs> thank you. That's great. Well, Paula, thank you so much. I, I just want to encourage our listeners again to, to go out and get Paula's book on this exact subject called When Christians Were Jews, The First Generation. That came out in 2018 and it is available at all of your bookstores and Amazons. So thank you again, Paula. And uh, thank you to Helen and to our listeners, and we will see all of you on the next episode of Biblical Time Machine. Bye.